Hey friends, I hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible, and that you're taking care of all the people and pets that are important to you. If you celebrate Easter, I hope you had a great Easter. If you're celebrating Passover this week, uh, I wish you a kosher and joyous Passover. This will be the last episode of the People Are the Enemy podcast before my guest DJ set airs on WFMU as part of their Radio Row program. So I want to take this opportunity to remind you to please tune in for that set. Uh, It's going to be broadcast Sunday, April 24th, from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And you can listen live anywhere in the world, online via WFMU.org or via WFMU's free mobile app. Thank you in advance for listening. I I know you're really going to enjoy what you hear. Right now, you are listening to the People Are the Enemy podcast. I'm the host of the show. My name is Andy Mascola. Hello! There are no ads on this podcast, and there is no Patreon set up for it. The only thing I've ever asked of listeners is if you love the show, and if you'd like to help contribute to it and myself monetarily, and get yourself or the reader in your life some quality literature, please consider purchasing one or two of my books. I'm the author of nine novels that are all currently available worldwide in both paperback and ebook formats via Amazon. And if you don't use Amazon but you like ebooks, you can find all nine of my stories in ebook format at Google Play. Just type my last name, M A S C O L A. That's how you find me on Google Play. If you don't use Amazon but you prefer paperbacks, you can find and purchase most of my novels in paperback format at barnesandnoble.com. BN.com if you're in a hurry. If you've already purchased any or all of my books, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, Here's the quirky theme song. Are the Enemy listeners. This is episode 224 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out. Thanks for spending time with me. It's good to have you along. You're looking well. Uh, our guest today is Shane Morris. In addition to being Travis Scott's former manager, Shane is an engineer, a father, a husband, and the host of a new podcast called Shane Morris Sucks. Now, I first discovered Shane via his TikTok profile, wherein, after the Astro World tragedy of last year, Uh, Shane came to prominence for using TikTok as a way to communicate his experiences managing Travis Scott and his impressions on not only Travis's personality and work habits, but but the ethos of the music industry of the late aughts and early 2010s, of which he was a part. Now, I, I continue to follow Shane Morris on TikTok because I found him to be an intelligent and affable family guy with whip smart takes on modern politics, socioeconomics, and world history. Now, time and again, I've observed Shane give his opinion on any number of polarizing topics and then watch as other TikTokers attempt to convince him otherwise, only to have Shane handily dismantle his opponents with counterarguments in a way that's always succinct, often clever, and even sometimes funny. Now, I reached out to Shane to talk with me uh, almost a month ago, and I'm sincerely happy we're able to now because 
to make this happen because he wasn't too well for a while. So without further ado, let's now speak with uh, Shane Morris. Let me get him on the phone here. Shoot, did I just screw this up? Oh, I did not. Okay, Shane Morris, are you there, sir? You're solid. How are you? Oh, I'm all right. Thank you so, so much for joining me. And, and it is... Uh, I am sincerely grateful uh, to be able to talk with you, man. It was, it was. Uh, I was a little nervous there, Shane. Yeah, I. It, well, it was, it was uh, a little touch and go. Um, so the the background for your podcast listeners is, we were initially slated to talk about three weeks ago, and then uh, I had a breakthrough case of COVID, despite you know being vaccinated and having my booster shot. I was sick for three days, and then I had a uh, an instemi which is a, a minor heart attack. And so I'm only 35. It was a little scary. Uh, but I am now mostly recovered and glad to be here uh, healthy and, and most importantly alive. I'm very good at being alive, and I'd like to continue being alive for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say you've got, a, you've got a young son, and you've got, you've got one on the way. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, the second is due uh, mid-August. Well, so that's exciting, man. Away. Exciting. So, yeah, it's important that, that you, you stay on this side of the dirt, so to speak. That's <laughs> <Indeed>. a... <laughs> so we're speaking today, Shane, on, on Easter Sunday. How has your day been? Uh, mostly normal. Today was washing machine repair and house cleaning. Okay. Okay. Did you do anything special for, for your son at all for, for Easter, or was it just a, a regular Sunday for him? Uh, mostly a regular Sunday. We're, we're not particularly religious in the household, so I mostly just, you know, took it as a normal weekend and, um, enjoyed some quiet time. Right on, man. Right on. Well, thank you. I, I, I really do especially appreciate you giving me your time, especially today on, uh, on a Sunday on your, on your weekend off. So, because I know you're a, you've got a regular full-time job like myself, I'm, I'm sure. So, yeah. Right on. Anyway, uh, Sheen, after the Astro World tragedy of last year, you had a lot to say about Travis Scott as a person and your impressions of his character, which I think anyone who had heard you speak about him or read anything you'd written about him would agree was largely unfavorable. Has there been any contact between yourself and Travis or any one of his associates uh, since the Astro World tragedy? No, I haven't been in contact with him. And uh, so we do have some you know, mutual contacts who who I talked to that were aware of our history, who reached out and, you know, just kind of, you know, reaffirmed like, hey, you know, like that guy's a real jackass and we've known for a long time. It's just interesting seeing uh, the rest of the world know what I've known for the better part of a decade now. Right on, right on. Shane, you met, you met Travis Scott, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is about 2009, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe it was December of 2009 when we first uh, started talking, yeah. Very good. And shortly after, you guys began working together, and you were managing his career until about 2013. Uh, it was, yeah, the end of 2012, uh, almost 2013, yeah. What, what caused the ending of, of your working relationship with Travis? Um, we'd had a lot of uh, problems. You know, it, it's like any other relationship where... Uh, anytime you're, you're you're managing an artist, you've got the professional side, but you're also really part, you know, psychologist and uh, mentor and friend. And so uh, our relationship had had some pitfalls uh, due to his behavior. Uh, but ultimately, um, you know, I have epilepsy, so I had a seizure when we were in Los Angeles. And uh, I was with, uh, well, we were with a lot of people at the time. I'd say there was about a dozen people, um, you know, in the dungeon, which was our uh, recording studio slash um, uh, skate room slash uh, uh, photo studio. It was a really cool creative space in Los Angeles. And, um, yeah, I had a seizure. I was with Travis and Tony in an adjacent room. And um, 
when I came to, I had other people around me and Travis wasn't there. And so uh, people were like, well, what happened? Well, Shane had a seizure and Travis left. And after the fact, you know, he made some remarks like, well, I, you know, if I'm going to be taking meetings, I can't have my, my manager flopping around on the ground like that, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized that at that point, um, there was just a, a character issue with him that I wasn't willing to move forward with. And so I made a business decision, which was, uh, at the time, pretty straightforward. Uh, Travis was not a profitable artist. Uh, he was very much, you know, small time at that point. And I thought, well, I'm not going to go out of my way to put my health at risk for somebody who's very much a small time rapper. Uh, I have better things that I can be doing with my time. And so uh, we severed ties and that was that. Was it after after that point at which you decided to get out of the music business entirely? Oh, no, not at all. Um, after that, I ended up working for Sony Music Nashville. I worked in country music for a while. Uh, you know, I, and I work in the digital space. I'm a coder and an engineer. So it just so happened that, you know, my skill set uh, in in the digital world, uh, understanding algorithms, being able to understand uh, user psychographic behavior, um, demographic mapping, etc., worked really well in the early stages of streaming music when SoundCloud was in its infancy, Spotify really hadn't taken over. And so if you're managing what largely is a digital music platform, and, you know, at that time, you know, working with those artists who often, you know, couldn't get their music released, to, you know, on, on things like DistroKid and CD Baby, what we have now, you had to independently release music. Uh, I had a, a skill set that allowed me to be successful, and that's why uh, Sony ended up picking me up after I stopped working with Travis. I'm glad you mentioned that. One of the most interesting tidbits I gleaned from you spilling the proverbial tea on TikTok about your time in the music industry was uh, when you talked about programming a fleet of SoundCloud bots in order to artificially exaggerate the popularity of Travis Scott's music. Uh, additionally, you'd said you'd done the same sort of thing with his Twitter. Is this a common practice in the world of music management? It was back then. Uh, I did it for a lot of artists, so other managers would contact me to do this. And it's it's not really rocket science. So we, at the time, I would hire uh, people on Mechanical Turk, which is just a service you can get to go and get people to create you know fake accounts for you. So I would get fake accounts made under fake Gmail domains. Um, and then I would load them up on like a Linode or a DigitalOcean server. They're about $5 a piece. Um, so you basically just load up uh, Ubuntu operating system and uh, you can rotate the IP address. So uh, you can have multiple accounts playing from different places, quote unquote, places around the world based upon, you know, what IP address you want to assign them, what region. And SoundCloud was none the wiser at the time. They were not particularly adept at identifying uh, bot armies. So when... You know, back in the day, and I know that you know you you've done music blogging yourself. It's something that I I learned in Earmilk, which was people liked things that were already popular or appeared to be popular, um, and so I could script comments, I could script plays, and then when people saw you know an artist, be like, oh, this this song has one hundred fifty thousand plays. This artist must be great. Uh, when in reality, he he didn't really have that many fans. So it was fairly commonplace until SoundCloud figured it out. Uh, but it took them years. This was something that was going on for a very long time. I was going to ask if this is this sort of thing is still done today, um, and I think you pretty much just answered that question. So they've kind of figured out that folks are, would create bots and, and artificially inflate inflate numbers. Is it <laughs> is it safe to say that perhaps the, the musicians that we're enjoying today, or the musicians that are considered highly pop popularized or became to prominence in the in the early two thousand tens, 
might have, you know, garnered their fame through this way? It's fair to say that there are quite a few artists that hired uh, me and people like me um, to fake their popularity. And some of those artists rose to prominence and are still popular today. Um, Some of them are, you know, friends of mine, and I'm not going to throw them under the bus. Uh, I think the, the interesting note is that I think it was a wise decision by artists and their management to do that because it allowed them to stand out. I think, you know, um, just as, you know, some professional athletes use performance enhancing drugs, yes, you can enhance your, your play counts, right? But if the music isn't good, right, when people go and listen to it, you're not going to go very far anyway. Um, no artist that I artificially in, uh, inflated play counts for that had bad music ended up rising to prominence. Their songs, if you can't write a, a catchy hook, no amount of me providing you a technological performance-enhancing drug, if you will, is going to allow you to become successful because you're still not good at your craft. But if you are there and you just need that, you know, fake it till you make it appearance of popularity maybe my skill set can help you out. So I think that, you know, the caveat should be drawn. I can't make you better at your skill. I can only make you appear to be better at your skill if you already have that skill set. Right on. I have to imagine that probably goes hand in hand with um, work ethic too. You know, if, if you're if you're not willing to put in continuous effort and put out continually put out new music, whether it being uh, featuring with other, uh, other rappers or, um, you know, Mixtapes, et cetera, et cetera, how they're, they're popularized today, uh, that you're probably not going to stay in the public eye for long. Oh, that's 1,000% true. I consider um, songwriting and song production to be as much a skill as, you know, what I do in coding and engineering. I think that if you're serious about it, uh, you need to be putting in eight hours a day. You need to treat it like a job, like anybody else. Um, it doesn't always have to be all, you know, songwriting, but the artists that I have seen become successful, treat it like a job, um, have a healthy work-life balance, don't burn themselves out. And, you know, they, they really try to hone their craft in the same way that, you know, I've honed being an engineer for the past 17 years. So it's not that, you know, I'm, I'm saying that everybody who puts in you know, those eight hours a day is going to, you know, become a professional musician. But I think that if you handle it like a professional, you'll have a much better chance than other people for sure. Sure. You're from Texas, Shane, or you're in Texas. You live in Texas presently. Have you always been from Texas? Absolutely not. No, I was in Nashville. Um, I lived in Atlanta. I was in Northern California. I've been in Southern California. Uh, I was in Oregon for a while. So, yeah, I I was uh, fortunate that when I was younger, uh, most of my jobs allowed me to live and work remotely. And so I got to choose wherever I wanted to live with the caveat that I usually needed high-speed internet. But that was about it. Is it is it true that that um, kids in school in Texas have to pledge allegiance like separately to the Texas flag? You know, I don't know, but I can ask my wife about it. That I, I wouldn't be surprised, as uh, <laughs> as Texas does tend to do things a little differently. Yeah, no kidding. I was like, whoa, when I heard that, uh, and I wasn't sure if it was still something that was still happening, but uh, I was shocked. Shane, there was a recent uh, YouTube bio on Travis Scott wherein you were mentioned briefly. And after this bio debuted, you went on to TikTok and said that you'd been inundated by up-and-coming rappers looking, I assume, to be managed by you. Do you believe these rappers who reached out to you were primarily interested in your programming abilities so so that they may uh, take advantage of uh, artificially inflated you know, numbers and whatnot? Do you think that was what they were, they were looking for? 
I think that most people believe that I'm capable of doing things that I'm not capable of doing. The reality is that when I was working with Travis Scott, he was a nobody. But, you know, he's far from the most prominent artist I work with. And, you know, I usually professionally have been known for my work in pop music and in country music. In fact, primarily country music, which is why I always find it kind of interesting that, you know, rappers want me to manage them. But they also probably don't want to. I mean, one, I'm not taking management clients. I have very little interest in engaging in rap music. It's uh, something that I appreciate as part of my old life. And I'm glad that uh, I was able to accomplish what I did when I was younger. But it just doesn't really mesh well with my current lifestyle as a dad and what I'm doing professionally now, where I'm much more fulfilled. But it is interesting anytime a new Travis Scott video hits YouTube um, that, that, that mentions me, these young rappers, you know, will look me up and assume that I want to work with them or I have interest. And, you know, one, you have to have money. I mean, what I do um, in terms of like psychographic ad targeting, I still need a significant ad budget. Uh, when I was working with record labels, you know, we were able to more efficiently spend their ad budgets. That's why, you know, a record label would hire me. So, you know, when they say, hey, you know, I want you to manage me, it's like, well, I, I could, but if you don't have money to invest in your business and in the tens of thousands of dollars at least, I can't help you a lot. And so that, I think that's the first fundamental misunderstanding. The second one is, um, you know, I'm used to working in a major label environment. And so now being independent, um, especially now that I've been out of the business, you know, quote unquote, officially for, you know, four years. Uh, I, I, I would say that I'm probably behind the times, you know, the, the music industry uh, moves at a, a rapid pace. And so the, the connections that I had four years ago might not be viable today. And, and, and as much as it's a connections based industry, I'm probably not going to be very workable as a manager anyway. So I'm so far out of the loop that I, I'm, I'm flattered that they would think of me, but I, I probably wouldn't be a great manager at this point in my life. You mentioned working with other prominent artists. Who were the other artists you'd worked with? Um, well, we work in country music, and I was able to work with uh, Kenny Chesney and Carrie Underwood and Marin Morris. Um, I worked with some other pop artists. Most of them were um, the Fueled by Ramen label back in the day. Um, you know, I was I was employed by Fueled by Ramen before, and then I also worked with MySpace Music at one of my first um, jobs on the label side over there. So any artist that was signed to MySpace Music... Um, you know, I was our, our, our uh, assistant, you know, digital marketing director, so I did all the grunt work. But yeah, I mean, uh, uh, gosh, uh, Taika was on MySpace Records. Uh, you know, there's just tons of people that um, kind of came out of the environment, you know, circa 2007 that rose to prominence around, you know, 2011, 2012. Um, I've had a working relationship with a rapper named G Easy since 2000. 2008, back when he was still making like Bay Area inspired music. So I've known G a long time, still count as a friend. So um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's definitely uh, an interesting look through my Rolodex sometimes because you know I've been able to witness people go from uh, you know sleeping on my couch to being you know worldwide touring musicians. So there there's certainly some some fun moments when um, I get to reconnect with people and um, have fun. And then my sister is now married to a, a prominent. Uh, country music star, so I'm still definitely involved in that as well. Very cool, very cool. Now, Shane, you just launched a podcast, as I mentioned. It's called Shane Morris Sucks. You said it's uh, it's going to be used as a way to get your ideas out. Now, the first episode of Shane Morris Sucks was about dictators, specifically the Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. 
and what you saw as the similarities to Putin. Now, it's it's been a month since the first episode of the podcast premiered. Obviously, it's been waylaid due to, you know, you rehabbing, in, 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 so to speak, as far as your health. Do you see things unfolding in Ukraine in regard to the Russian invasion as you'd predicted? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I... I, you know, I, I, in that episode, I talked about how it doesn't pay to be the bad news person for the evil dictator. And a lot of that is borne out as true. So over the past couple days, obviously, the, the, the first episode was released almost a month ago now. So as that uh, episode has aged, some of the predictions that I had therein proved rather prescient, where I was able to see that, you know, Vladimir Putin is purging his FSB right now, which is kind of like his secret police slash CIA. And it's because dictators don't like getting bad news. And if you're the person giving bad news to them, typically you don't have a job anymore. So the honest uh, people within the FSB have been, quote unquote, purged. I think last week it was uh, either 100 or 100 people, uh, 150 people have been gone. He's now replaced his top general. And uh, with a, a recent interview with the, um, I think he's the prime minister of Austria, pres- president of Austria, I'm not really sure how their, their power structure works exactly. Anyway, the president or prime minister of Austria recently noted in a face-to-face interview he had with Vladimir Putin was that he wasn't really living in reality, and it was clear that he was getting intelligence that only agreed with his existing view that Russia was winning this war. So I think that when it comes to the evil dictator analogy I drew between Nikolai Ceausescu and Vladimir Putin, I think that you know history tends to be a fantastic rubric for what will happen in the future. Uh, dictators' behaviors tend to be overwhelmingly similar in terms of their downfall, and so uh, Obviously, Ceausescu and, and Putin are going to fail in different ways, but I do see them as analogous to each other, even even today. Excellent. Excellent analysis. Thank you so much for sharing that. And listeners, I, I recommend you check out Shane's uh, podcast. At least the first episode was very good, and I'm looking forward to see what he does next. Shane, what do you have planned? If you Can can you give us any kind of clue as to what we can expect from the second episode and when, when we can expect that to drop? Yeah, so actually, I'm going to be recording the second episode uh, this evening. All right. Um, Yeah, so I got my script ready. And um, yeah, I'm going to be discussing uh, Web3, but, you know, from the context of an engineer. So a lot of talk has been made about, you know, quote-unquote distributed environments, blockchain, etc. But I really, you know, coming at it from the practical engineering perspective, I want to talk more about semantic code, um, how artificial intelligence will probably... um, uh, accelerate how we write code, how we can implement uh, infrastructure, and give people a better idea of uh, removing the hype from Web3 and demystifying it a bit, uh, peeling back some of those layers and allowing people to have, in my opinion, a more reasonable, pragmatic outlook of what Web3 will probably look like. And also, um, since I don't really like using the word Web3, I'm, I'm going to call it the the semantic code and um uh, artificially, intelli- uh, artificially intelligent code. So that's going to be the, the second episode. Very cool, very cool. Are you going to keep it dumb so that we can understand, or so that I can understand? <laughs> the goal is to make it accessible to people that don't have uh, a background in engineering and code. Okay, but with that good. Said, well, I, will, <laughs> I said, okay, good. <laughs> um, you know, one of the goals I have with my podcast is that I don't want to dumb it down too much. I, I, I think that, you know, what I like with the first episode with you know getting into an extremely dense subject like Nikolai Ceausescu, I want 
people to feel like they're getting smarter listening to it. I want them to be challenged by it. So one of my goals is that if you don't get it the first time, that's fine. Go back, um, you know, Google some terms that you didn't understand, re-listen, and treat it more like an academic lecture than necessarily a podcast. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that that would definitely a- apply to myself. I listened. I was telling Shane before we started recording, listeners, um, that I listened to the episode initially when it first came out because I'd been following him on on TikTok and I'd been anticipating the episode coming out. Listened to it then, and then I thought, well, I better listen to it again since we're going to be speaking. And I got even more out of it the second time, and actually found myself wikiing Nikolai Ceausescu because I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge and looking up YouTube videos. So yeah, it's absolutely the sort of thing, and I'm sure because Shane has an appreciation of world history, as well as a million different other things, as you can tell uh, from listening to him, that uh, his his excitement uh, will is uh, is uh, you know it'll it'll, it'll excite you, and you're going to want to look into these things. Shane, this has been such a great conversation, and I, I sincerely appreciate you giving us your time today. Thank you so much, buddy. Awesome, Andy. It's uh, been a pleasure being a guest on your podcast today, and I'm glad we finally got to link up. And uh, I'm also going to be checking out your books, so we'll, uh, I'll do that this afternoon. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. And uh, listeners, with that, we're going to move into a next segment here. This is uh, Rachel's Chart Chat with Rachel from Des Moines. Take it away, Rachel. Thanks, Andy. Hello, and welcome back to Rachel's Chart Chat for another week. Thanks to everyone for listening last week. It seemed like a lot of people liked that White Horse song like I do. This week, we'll be covering the Hot 100 from April 9th of 1977. When you think about 1977 in pop culture, you might think of Star Wars, Saturday Night Fever movie and soundtrack, or Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. The first single from Rumors was Go Your Own Way, and it was released at the tail end of December of 76, and it hit the Hot 100 in the second week of January of 77, and then it made it into the top 40 just two weeks later. This week, it's at number 51, down from a peak of number 10. The B-side of Go Your Own Way was Silver Springs, and that was a Stevie Nicks composition that was famously kept off of Rumors, and it was not released as a single until the 1997 Fleetwood Mac reunion live album, The Dance. And that was a very personal song that Stevie wrote about her and Lindsey Buckingham's relationship. Uh, Just like Go Your Own Way was his writing about that same coupling. And I did confirm in Wikipedia that it was named after the city of Silver Springs, Maryland. Like she just saw it on a road sign and thought it was beautiful. And it kind of reminded me of Phoebe from Friends thinking that White Plains was a beautiful place. White Plains in New York. In all, four singles were released off of Rumors, and all of them went top 10 in the U.S. So on to the chart picks. At number 92, we have ZZ Top, Arrested for Driving While Blind, and it's a song about drunk driving and it seems to be not really pro but not 100% anti but it does say you will be arrested for for doing so Um, it's at number 92 this week and it made it to number 91 if you like ZZ Top you like their early sound check this one out I had never heard it before I thought it was pretty cool at number 86 we have David Bowie with Sound and Vision off of the album Low which was the first of the Berlin Trilogy. And when I listened to this song, at first it really wasn't grabbing me, but then the more I listened to it, I could really hear the 
the Brian Eno of it all, and it made me think of some of the, the work he did with those early Talking Heads albums. I could kind of see a parallel between there. I, I had assumed he was, for some reason, I thought he was a producer on those Berlin albums, so he's not officially credited as that. But you definitely hear his influence. And I think you literally do hear him singing. This made it only to number 69 in the United States, but it was a number three hit in the UK. At number 85, had to throw some tall under the chart picks for you. We have The Whistler by Jethro Tull off of their album Songs from the Wood. And I really like this one because it starts out with some cool mallet percussion. And as many of you know, I play, uh, I play mallets. I play bells and xylophone. Songs from the Wood has a cool album cover, and on the back, it has a tree stump that's been made to look like a record on a turntable. And The Whistler made it to number 59 in the U.S. Up next, at number 58, is the band Stars with a Z, with their song Cherry Baby. Uh, I looked them up, and when I was trying to find their peak position, which was number 33, so they did crack the top 40 with this one, and Stars uh, were out of New Jersey. And the band formed uh, when the Brandy, the band behind Brandy, Looking Glass, when they split up, some of the guys started this band Stars, and they got a vocalist from the group that sang that Louis Louis song and made a hit with this one. And I don't really know a lot about them. They're described as a power pop and heavy metal band. So I feel like I need to want to dig into these guys some more to learn more about them. But if you're a power pop guy, you probably already know about this one, for starters, because uh, it's just not really my world, but I do enjoy whenever I dip a toe into it. But this is just a, a fun little song, Cherry Baby. And of course, you can sing it to your pet if you have a two-syllable name pet, like Reggie. Reggie Baby. It looks out perfectly. Uh, number 49, we have Queen with Tie Your Mother Down. And that's the highest the song is going to get in the U.S. is 49, but it did make it to number 31 in the U.K., and I chose this one because Queen have so many good songs that it's easy to, you know, miss a couple of them. And especially this one, if it didn't get as high in the U.S. But I want to say it was on either the Purple or the Blue compilation album that I'm sure many of us listen to. Just a cool song of theirs. If you know kind of only what's on played on the classic rock radio, you should give a listen to Tie Your Mother Down. At number 43, we have good old Gary White with the song Phantom Rider. And I picked this 100% because everybody knows Dreamweaver. And I thought it was really funny that on his next album, he made a song called Phantom Writer. So you can be a weaver or a writer. And I just wanted to make people aware that this song exists. And the album it's on is called The Light of Smiles. And I don't think it's as good as Dreamweaver. It's just not as... It just, like last week we said, that these certain songs don't have, don't have that it factor that the bigger hit did. At number... 39 is the band Ambrosia with their uh, Beatle cover Magical Mystery Tour. And I was kind of excited to hear this because I had come across it in charts in, you know, previous times we were in this spring of 77, uh, but it was lower in the in the countdown, so it's, it's not on, it's only the live versions are on Spotify, but I'm going to, this is exactly what went through my mind when I first encountered uh, Ambrosia's Magical Mystery Tour. And this is a, a, as a as a written transcript. Billboard.com Hot 100 from 31277, number 66, Magical Mystery Tour by Ambrosia. Me. Hmm. What album was that on? Spotify only has live versions. Google. All this and World War II. Me. What? Did Ambrosia call an album that? Wikipedia. 
All This and World War II is a 1976 musical documentary directed by Tony Palmer. Me. Okay, weird. Wikipedia. It juxtaposes Beatles songs covered by a variety of musicians with World War II newsreel footage and 20th Century Fox films. Me. That sounds insane. Wikipedia. The film was severely mauled by critics and lasted just two weeks in cinemas before being pulled. Uh, once on the best show, Tom and uh, BB from Las Vegas were discussing this movie, and I felt fairly relieved to know that it was not just some weird made-up thing, that it really did exist. Next is Andrea True Connection at number 32 with New York You Got Me Dancing. She's more known for uh, More, 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 How Do You Like It song. I think this one is a better song. It's got more lyrics, first of all, and I think it's a lot of fun. Just another good disco song from her. And the album is called White Witch. She seemed to be really into capes. If you look up Andrea Trier, a lot of her pictures of her wearing capes. Up next is Electric Light Orchestra at number 29, uh, down from a peak of 24 with Do Ya. And this is a pretty hard rocking song from them. And again, it's kind of like that Queen song. It's just not necessarily in the like, you know, five songs that everyone knows or that gets played on the classic rock radio or whatever. But uh, I would definitely recommend it. It's I think people maybe got a little overused of uh, Mr. Blue Sky. So maybe they got a little turned off to ELO, but they have so much good stuff. And this song was actually recorded first by a band called The Move that Jeff Lynn was also associated with. At number 27, we have the Climax Blues Band with Couldn't Get It Right. And this is one of my fave songs of the 70s. Uh, it's a rock and roll song, but it got a, kind of a cool, funky beat. And the story behind it is that they were... The, the lyric in the song is, it kept on looking for a sign in the middle of the night, but I couldn't get it, couldn't see the light, and I couldn't get it right. And the story that I heard was, it was about when they were touring in the United States, and they were looking for the Holiday Inn, the light, the light up sign of the Holiday Inn, because that's where they're going to be spending the night. And I just love that, it's like, you know, being on the road, that's what you're looking for, is where you're going to be able to, to turn in and sleep for the night. And that song would actually go on to hit number three, which it definitely deserves, because it's, it's a super cool song. At uh, number 18, we have Rose Royce uh, from the Car Wash soundtrack with I Want to Get Next to You. And it's at number 18 this week. And it would go on to hit number 10. And the whole Car Wash soundtrack is a Rose Royce album. It's not like, you know, most soundtracks have a variety of artists. Um, but this, is, uh, this was credited as a Rose Royce album. So uh, needed, I probably need to dig more into it. I kind of only know Car Wash and this one. But it's like a really sweet uh, romantic ballad. I really like it. And the last pick for this week is Natalie Cole with I've Got Love on My Mind. And I didn't, I, when Natalie Cole came out with Unforgettable, you know, I knew her, her father was famous and that was this important, you know, big deal that she made this duet with him that he's passed on and they're recording a duet together. I really didn't know how many good songs Natalie Cole had or all the different stuff that she had done in the 70s. Um, so this is another just really pretty ballad, really nice uh, love song. I really like it. It's probably my favorite of hers. Um, I didn't get a chance to listen to the 1986 chart this week. I'm sure there's good stuff in there. I'll try to squeeze it in next week if I have time. Thanks so much for listening. Back to you, Andy. Thank you, Rachel. Wow, 77 was quite a year, wasn't it? You know, I always think about I always think about the obvious. Star Wars came out in 1977, and then I think about Elvis Presley because Elvis Presley died in August of 1977, and supposedly 
at that time, he was trying to get a cut of Star Wars to watch in his home theater, because I'm sure it was tough for that guy to get out to a movie, you know, given his popularity. But yeah, Elvis Presley passed in, in 77. Shoot, man, David Lynch, Eraserhead, that, that, that debuted in 1977. It was a midnight movie. It wasn't hugely popular, obviously, outside of, you know, um, small theaters in, in, uh, in major cities. I'm sure, but now it's obviously considered considered a uh, a masterpiece of of the form. Uh, but yeah, man, the Clash's first album came out in '77. Talking Heads' first album that was actually titled '77 came out in '77, and uh, yeah, that chart was really interesting. A lot of a uh, a lot of interesting music there. You know, disco obviously, uh, David Bowie, uh, Sound and Vision. Man, oh man, that that might be the most poppy song off that album low that album low is is uh very very um i should say it's 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 not an easy listen initially but it grows on you it may be my favorite bowie album it's it's wonderful if you ever get a chance to listen to it and that whole the whole berlin uh period of bowie is is wonderful to explore if you ever check that out but uh yeah low is low is an incredible David Bowie album, but, uh, and that sound and vision, and I may say it's an anomaly in that, uh, in that collection. And of course, Fleetwood Mac rumors, oh my God, what an album, a masterpiece, not a clunker on it. It's so good. It's still charts. You'll still see a chart every time something, uh, something happens with one of those songs, whether it's, uh, uh, somebody going viral using the song for something or, or, or what have you. Just, uh, just an amazing, amazing album. Rumors. Uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Thank you so much, Rachel, for bringing us that, that chart. And, uh, and that's about it. That's about all we have. I, I did want to say, you know, rest in peace to Gilbert Gottfried. I, I hadn't said anything about him at the outset of the show. I, I, I felt odd bringing it up, you know, before speaking with our guest. I didn't want to kind of, um, bring the show down. But uh, I was a huge Gilbert fan, and he was outrageous. And uh, it, it's 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 a loss for sure. I I laughed so hard so many times. Uh, Gilbert was on Howard Stern back in the day. I think over over a hundred appearances that he made on Stern over the years, and and he would just sit in. And every time he sat in, like for the news, he would be absolutely outrageous. And the one word that I saw that kept coming up associated with Gilbert in the memorials posted even um, just in, 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 in tweets, you know, from, from his uh, fellow comedians and folks who, who knew and respected him, was fearless. There's that word again, man, fearless. And Gilbert was fearless. He said whatever the hell he wanted, regardless of the repercussions. And at times, yeah, <laughs> at times it cost him jobs for sure. But, uh, but yeah, that's how you make a name for yourself. That's how you that's how you do it. You, you don't, you, you just got to be, I guess, punk rock is the best way to put it. And, uh, just be absolutely fearless. And, uh, Gilbert was a fearless comedian and, uh, and he will be missed for sure. Rest in peace, Gilbert Gottfried. Jeez, I don't even, I don't even know what episode of the show this was. I got so, I just got so sad thinking about Gilbert. Let me just run back here. What, what episode of the show is this? 224? 
we call it 224? Yeah, we'll call it 224. This has been episode 224 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Shane Morris. And thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. We love you. Peace.